Hi, I'm Bingo Demagogue, and welcome to the podcast, The Populist's Playbook. If you're concerned about the state of politics in the modern world, if you feel like roughly half of voters have taken leave of their senses, if you want to be better informed about the propaganda that's being used to try and manipulate you, then I hope you'll find this interesting. You should definitely find it concerning. Promising the impossible. So the tactic we're going to look at in this, the first chapter of the Populist's Playbook, is promising the impossible. And we're starting here because it's one of the most outrageous, the most frustrating, and the most fascinating of techniques. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Just like I promised, right? The impossible. It can be so blatant. It can make you stop, like Alice, and wonder, how do people believe these impossible things? All politicians make campaign promises. Some of them even intend to try and keep them. What sets apart the populace, though, is the audacity of promising the impossible. Promising things not only that they won't deliver, but that they can't possibly deliver. And what can then be almost fanatical levels of belief from their supporters. So, we're going to look at the practice, going to look at some recent examples, how they were made, why they were made, what happened next, and what we can do about it. A couple of quick definitions following the practice of recent academic political studies, we're going to broadly define a promise as an explicit commitment to a specific action rather than a mere statement of policy. Read my lips, no new taxes, is a promise. I'm against the idea of raising taxes is merely a position. What we mean by impossible is also fairly straightforward. Things that are either literally impossible, either in themselves or in conflict with other promises, and virtually impossible. Promises that might in the wildest fantasy be physically possible, but the candidate has no means of being able to deliver even if they win. It's a paradox to consider, is promising the impossible a weakness or a strength? In any rational situation, promising the impossible should be a weak link in the populist's armour. If you can show what someone is saying is impossible, it should hurt their credibility, right? Unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. It seems impossible promises can hurt their credibility, just not necessarily with the people who matter, and not at the time that counts. We're going to look at three different examples of populists promising the impossible, all from the past 10 years. Donald Trump's 2016 promise to build the wall along the US's southern border and have Mexico pay for it. The Scottish Nationalist Party's white paper commitments about a currency union and control of economic levers. And finally, the promises made during the Brexit referendum that we could leave and have the exact same benefits as staying, among other things. Building the wall. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Donald Trump has possibly promised more unbelievable things than any other modern politician. He has this to say on the impossible. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Now, neither his self-belief or ego was constrained by political reality or even the laws of physics. The wall was a key campaign promise that resonated with his base. We'll come back to the chance of build the wall in our chapter on emotional oratory. Now, walls are possible. There's already a wall or fence along some of the border. So was this really an impossible promise? Yes. What Trump actually promised was impossible for several reasons. First, the cost and funding. 
Trump estimated it would cost between $4 and $10 billion. Other estimates vary depending on the scale and type of barrier, which he wasn't always clear about. Still, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in their technology review, Bad Math Props Up Trump's Border Wall, estimated that a 1,600-kilometer steel and concrete wall would cost over $40 billion US dollars. Secondly, Trump dismissed the cost as irrelevant, saying Mexico would pay for it. Mexico ruled out paying for it, and Trump has no legal means to coerce them. I know there was some talk later possibly Trump meant to seize money Mexican immigrants sent home. That would still only be a fraction of the estimated cost, and it would soon dry up if targeted. There is also talk that, oh, he's going to get the money back in a trade deal. The numbers just don't add up. The third impossibility was Trump overstated or overestimated the executive power to do it. Whatever he likes to think, Trump's power as president is limited. For example, when he was elected, he couldn't allocate new funds to the project. He could only redirect some limited existing funds. That's not to say he didn't do his damnedest. When trying to secure $5.6 billion in funding for the wall, remember that's only a fraction of the estimated $40 billion uh, cost, it led to the longest shutdown of the federal government in US history and the declaration of a state of emergency. Fourth, there's simply the nature of the border that makes a wall practically impossible and even counterproductive. Much of the US-Mexican border is on the river the Rio Grande. Now, neither the US nor Mexico is allowed to divert water or build anything that interferes with flood management. And much of the land along either side of the border is privately owned. There could be decades of hundreds of legal battles and challenges just to get the rights to get started, all driving up the cost. Some of the parts of the border that are the most impenetrable at the minute are in the Arizona desert. Here, stretches are practically impassable because they are so wild. Building a concrete wall would involve laying thousands of miles of roads and infrastructure into the desert just to move the materials. Now, those roads and infrastructure could actually then make crossing the border at these points more attractive. That could make building the wall counterproductive to the claim that it will make border crossings harder. But the key point here is just the scale of the project is virtually impossible. And fifth, is the actual physical nature of the wall that he promised. Trump is supposedly a real estate businessman, but some of the comments Trump made about the wall on the campaign trail sound more like a kid's cartoon drawing of a castle. He described he painted pictures about nearly 2,000 miles of 50-foot high reinforced concrete barrier along the whole border. He wanted it simultaneously painted black, which would add several million dollars to the cost, and for it to be transparent so he could see the Mexicans with their bags of drugs on the other side. And just for hyperbole, he added to the visualisation a water-filled moat filled with snakes, alligators, spikes, and electric fences. So why did he do it? Well, a key plank of Trump's platform was his anti-immigration rhetoric. We'll come to that later in the series in the chapter on fear-mongering. This was what his target audience wanted to hear. A morning consult poll released during the campaign said 47% of voters supported building a wall, and that rose to a large majority of Republican voters. While many people knew Trump as a reality TV star, his official occupation was as a real estate developer. It was a connection between Trump's key anti-immigration policy and what he was known for. That, in a way, gave the statement ethos. He was in the building trade, he should know about walls. It presented him almost as an authority uh, on the subject. It had fear-mongering pathos. Mexicans are coming, the caravan is coming, there's terrorists, there's drugs, there's rapists. None of it really substantiated. They're bringing drugs... They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And in a crude, gross oversimplification way, there was logos. There was a logic to his argument. If the border's a problem and you want to close the border, build a big wall on the border. It was a very simple promise to make that anyone could understand. It was a promise his core supporters wanted to hear. Now, 
in a practical sense of, of being in government, it doesn't matter that it was impossible because building it is to solve an imaginary overhyped problem. So there's not a huge problem in not being able to deliver it. And we're coming up to Trump's end of term. What's his position now on the wall? What do his voters think? What does he claim? What has he delivered? To be fair, Trump has tried to do the impossible. He's tried to build the wall. It's possible he didn't realise or care just how absurd his promise was. He even shut down the US government at huge harm. He threatened to veto any spending plans that didn't include $5.6 billion. He signed executive orders. He moved budgets from projects such as building schools for the children of the military. And all these machinations, what have they delivered? Well, he's polarised the country, he's redirected billions of funds, he's declared national emergencies, he's starred relationships with Mexico. As of late 2019, he had built around 100 miles of fencing, of which 95 miles was a replacement for fence already there. He's come up with the best ever wall design of a fence, which if you go on YouTube, you can see eight-year-olds climbing it. And in the compulsory purchases, they have managed to purchase three miles of private property along the border that they can build a wall on. We need to build a wall. And it has to be built quickly. You would think he might be a bit shamefaced uh, when challenged on it. No. Challenged first on the promise that Mexico will pay for the wall, the first tactic is to backtrack. Trump could not have been clearer that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. He said it loud, he said it repeatedly, and the crowd loved it. Watch, watch this, wait. Watch this. Are you guys ready for it? Who's going to pay for the wall? By the way, a hundred percent. You know, the politicians say they'll never pay a hundred percent. They're not going to write us a check, but they'll pay. They'll pay in one form or another. They may even write us a check by the time they see what happened. While he was vague about how exactly Mexico would pay, he did tout at one point they might write a check. He did say in one released memo Mexico was going to make a one off payment of up to $10 billion. Compare this to what he later said. When I say Mexico's going to pay for the wall, do you think they're going to write a check for 20 billion or 10 billion or 5 billion or 2 cents? No, they're paying for the wall in a great trade deal. He just claims that he's kept the promise, even doubled down on it. A White House declaration three years into his term still claimed, we will get the job done. On the 14th of February 2020, in Political Magazine, Jared Kushner said, the project will substantially be done by the end of the year or early next year. That was a promise, and it's important that it's now being accomplished. So being generous, Trump has spent a lot of energy failing to build the wall. This is before we even get into the little expected impact and the flaws in the design. But he will still speak to his base. He will say he's delivering the impossible. Maybe he just needs another term or unconstitutional several terms to deliver on it. He's still saying in 2020, as we speak, a long, tall, and very powerful wall is being built. More accurately, we could say some sections of existing fence are being replaced. But whatever he ends up delivering, it won't be the impossible campaign promise for a full border, 50-foot concrete wall, transparent and painted black, with a moat full of alligators, snakes, and electric fencing. Just like I promised, right? Our next two examples come from the United Kingdom. The UK has had two divisive constitutional referendums in the past decade. The 2014 Scottish independence referendum and the 2016 Brexit vote on taking the UK out of the European Union. Both these votes were preceded by some of the most engaging, divisive and disputed campaigns seen in a modern liberal democracy. Claim and counterclaim, social media advertising, foreign interference, Unlikely bedfellows and different interpretations of reality divided, and in Scotland's case, quartered opinions. 
causing rifts that are still a long way from healing. We are going to come across the independence campaign and the Brexit campaign a few times in the populist playbook, so it's worth taking a moment to compare them. There were many differences between the two campaigns. A core element of the Brexit campaign was its anti-immigration stance. This was much closer to Donald Trump's wall than to the SNP's position in Scotland. Others would say the campaign to leave the EU was far more right-wing, and the drive to separate Scotland from the UK was more left-wing. But while some might resent the comparison, it's also possible to see many more similarities. They were both constitutional plebiscites, making a nationalist case to separate a country from a flawed, but inherently beneficial social, political and economic union. Both the cases made to leave the respective unions relied heavily on many of the 12 techniques of the populists' playbook, which is why we'll come across them again later in the series. For promises made during the independence campaign, we can look primarily at the White Paper. The White Paper was a controversial document from the start. Titled Scotland's Future, it was published as a Scottish Government white paper on the 26th of November 2013 by the Scottish Government under then First Minister Alex Salmond. The white paper was the keystone document setting out the nationalist promises, and it had approval at the highest level. Salmond described it as... This white paper is the most detailed blueprint that any people have ever been offered anywhere in the world uh, as a basis for becoming an independent country. While Nicola Sturgeon wrote about the launch, the document is a comprehensive guide to an independent Scotland. Across more than 170,000 words, on some 670 pages, many promises were made. Some were admittedly attractive, many were merely implausible, but several cornerstone promises were literally impossible. The economy, and specifically the currency an independent Scotland would use, was a topic of heated debate. The position of the Yes campaign was that Scotland would enter into an official currency union with the rest of the UK and keep using the British pound. This promise was made repeatedly throughout the campaign and explicitly several times in the white paper. On page 27, the pound is Scotland's currency. We will, therefore, retain the pound in an independent Scotland. On page 46, Scotland will continue to use the pound just as we do today. On page 105, Scotland will continue to use the pound, providing continuity and certainty for individuals and businesses in Scotland and the rest of the UK. And on page 398, the pound sterling will continue to be the currency of an independent Scotland. Those are just some of the multiple examples where it's referred to in the document. The UK Chancellor, the Bank of England and every major political party in the UK acting under independent advice almost immediately ruled out a formal currency union. Many of the reasons given by the Bank of England were that the UK would bear most of the liquidity and solvency risk, might have to bail out Scotland in the event of a financial or fiscal crisis, and that separate fiscal policy would bring about economic divergence, putting pressure on the monetary union. Despite it being completely ruled out, the SNP campaign doubled down on the promise. Over the next year, in the run-up to the vote and in the debates, they refused to commit to an alternative Plan B, even when all three main national UK parties ruled it out. A currency, union, a currency union only works if you've got a political union, which is what we've got today. Oh. Now look, any eight-year-old can tell you the flag of the country, the capital of a country, and its currency. Now I presume the flag's the Saltire, I assume our capital will still be Edinburgh, but you can't tell us what currency we'll have. What's well, an eight-year-old going to make of that? <laughs> Alistair, we'll take the pound because it belongs to Scotland as much as it belongs to England. It's our pound as well as your pound. This, this, this reminds me of when you said you had legal advice that said we'd automatically get back into the European Union and it didn't exist. You're not doing yourself any favours. 
Nicola Sturgeon still insisted that, well, after a yes vote, things would be different. What if they, they say, we're just not playing ball? What, what's, what's the plan B? I'm not going to start to hypothecate on the basis of what would be a completely unreasonable and incredible position of a, a government of the rest of the UK. This formal currency union, taken on its own, was virtually an impossible promise. An independent Scotland could only promise a currency union with the rest of the UK in the same way that Trump could promise Mexico will pay for his wall. It was a popular promise, with little to zero chance of success, that was not in their power to make. You could argue that a currency union was technically possible. Why this qualifies as literally promising the impossible is that it's mutually exclusive with another firm commitment, that an independent Scotland would have full control of its economic levers. This taking back of control, to borrow a phrase from the Brexit campaign, was a keystone economic argument for independence. It's repeatedly and explicitly made in the White Paper. On page 43, it says, Independence would make the Scottish Parliament and government responsible for the full range of economic powers. Decisions on taxation and other economic levers, as well as employment law, and all aspects of economic regulation would be taken in Scotland. Again on page 90, Scots are promised, Responsibility for all economic levers in Scotland. And on page 412. With independence, the Scottish Government and Parliament will have control over the full suite of economic levers. So what are these economic levers and what's the problem? The Financial Scrutiny Unit briefing, published in March 2014 on the Scottish Parliament's site, states The two main tools of economic policy are fiscal policy and monetary policy. A country's currency arrangement affects the degree of freedom that central banks and governments have in their monetary and fiscal policies. So in all of the currency scenarios where Scotland kept the pound, whether that was on a formal, informal or a pegged basis, all the monetary policy economic levers of interest rates, quantitative easing, forex influence, lending of last resort, Scotland would have control of none of them. Scotland could unofficially use the British pound. Scotland could possibly have full control of economic levers. Scotland could not do both. That promise was literally impossible. How can we have total independence when we're going to align our currency with the pound and be subject to Bank of England decisions on interest rates? Well, we're subject to those decisions right now. It makes sense for Scotland because of cross-border trade. It makes sense for the rest of the UK for uh, stability for us to remain within a currency union. So why did they do it? In a 640-page document, it would be surprising not to find some inconsistencies. But the currency is such a fundamental building block of a new country, and the economic levers so central to the take-back control narrative, this surely must have come under some serious discussion. If we look back to the reasons Trump made the promise on the wall, it was a way to make a connection on a topic about which the target audience already had strong feelings. It also played to Trump's history as a real estate developer and connected it to his key immigration policy. It was a way he could rally the troops and get the vote out with a simple message. Before entering politics, Salmond was a banker, and he still had close connections to international finance. If the pathos of the independence campaign was a cry of freedom, the ethos was meant to be the SNP's economic competence under Salmond. Yet this commitment to the pound sterling was a U-turn for the SNP, and for Alex Salmond in particular. Around a decade earlier, Alex Salmond, speaking to the Centre for European Policy Studies, described the pound as a millstone round Scotland's neck and was calling for an independent Scotland to join the euro. What changed between that and the white paper being published was the eurozone crisis and the 2008 recession. Setting aside the question of if and how an independent Scotland could meet the criteria to join the euro, 
Polling in Scotland suggested that both the euro and a new Scottish currency were seen as extremely high risk by voters. As one of the biggest stumbling blocks to selling independence was offsetting the real or perceived economic risk, and voters with mortgages, pensions, wages and debts in GBP did not want to move to a new currency or a euro, the SNP needed practically to commit to the pound or have no chance of winning. A large part of this risk aversion was due to the euro crisis, and the view of how it impacted Greece, Spain, Italy and Portugal compared to Northern Europe Eurozone countries such as France and Germany. Ironically, what had made the Eurozone crisis so hard to manage and so damaging to Southern Europe is that there was currency union, but there wasn't fiscal policy union and there wasn't the same level of political union. But this is the very scenario that the SNP tried to duplicate with a currency union. In their research paper, Lessons from Historical Monetary Unions, Economists John Ryan and John Lachlan find that they require a unified fiscal policy in order to withstand external shocks and that continuing national rivalries can undermine any monetary union. This was just one of many impossible promises that were made. Others were, for example, removing nuclear weapons from the Clyde River while still being a member of NATO, which would allow NATO ships with nuclear weapons full access to Scottish ports and waters. Lessons learned from the failure of the 2014 Scottish Nationalist campaign influenced the tactics of the 2016 British Nationalist campaign. The Brexit campaign, where we go next, learnt from the Scottish campaign that where the SNP had committed to a firm plan in black and white, that could then be picked apart in detail and used as a stick to beat them with when flaws, inconsistencies and impossibilities were found. And ironically, as we'll see, one of the most impossible promises from the EU Brexit campaign was made by a close friend of Alex Salmond's. The Leave campaign on the Brexit referendum had observed the Scottish referendum closely and learned from it, especially with regards to social media, targeting and strategy. The Yes campaign for independence had spawned several different campaigning groups which were supposed, for financial reporting reasons, to be independent of the SNP. But the arguments for independence were mainly created, shaped and delivered by the SNP, by the Scottish Government or closely aligned proxy organisations. By the end of the referendum campaign, the Scottish White Paper, that most detailed blueprint, had become a stick to beat the yes side with. The inconsistencies had been exposed. The impossibilities had been exposed. It was an official prospectus promising things already comprehensively ruled out in the 10 months between its publication and the public vote. Learning from this, the Vote Leave campaign did not publish a detailed prospectus, but they did make promises. Now, we could look at impossible promises from UKIP and the UKIP leader Nigel Farage, or Leave.eu, and we will come to them later in the series, but right now we're going to look at Vote Leave, which the Electoral Commission designated as the official Leave campaign. The three central figures of the Vote Leave campaign are still at the centre of British government. Now Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings. Nick Cohen, writing in the Guardian newspaper two days after the vote, said... Between them, they promised to spend £111 billion on the NHS, cuts to VAT and council tax, higher pensions, a better transport system, and replacements for the EU subsidies to the arts, science, farmers and deprived regions. Now what's perhaps astonishing is just how quickly after the result, the promises were being rolled back. Nick Cohen continues, On Thursday, they won by promising cuts in immigration. On Friday, Johnson said that in all probability, the number of foreigners coming here won't fall. On Thursday, they promised the economy would boom. 
By Friday, the pound was at a 30-year low. On Thursday, they promised 350 million extra pounds a week for the NHS. On Friday, it turns out there are no guarantees. These were not the only promises that were made, and Open Britain have put together a contract between the British people and the government based on several promises that were made during the campaign. One, that we would have the exact same benefits outside the single market. Two, that new trade deals would be ready to sign on day one. Three, that there would be major savings from the EU budget. Four, that there would be no change to Northern Ireland border arrangements. Five, preserving citizens, workers and environmental rights. Six, protecting national security. Seven, maintaining the integrity of the United Kingdom. Eight, strengthening science and research. Nine, leaving the EU by March 2019. And ten, a dramatic reduction of migration. And these range from ones that are plausible, possible, to impossible. One, of course, that jumps out is there being no change to Northern Ireland's border arrangements. A very contentious issue. You can see why they made the promise, but... If that is where the EU and UK border is, there must be a change there with that relationship. It's certainly impossible when taken in conjunction with uh, another promise that there would be no border in the Irish Sea that was made to Unionists in Northern Ireland. There must be some change to the border somewhere. If the border is between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, it's there. If it's considering the Ireland as a whole part of the single market and in the Irish Sea, it's there. Saying there would be no change in either position is an impossible promise. Perhaps the most treacherous promise at all came from David Davis. He said, What we have come up with is the idea of a comprehensive free trade agreement and a comprehensive customs agreement that will deliver the exact same benefits as we have. Now, to suggest that we could leave the European Union yet retain all the same benefits, exactly the same benefits, was clearly an impossible promise. It's ruled out by the nature of the Union. The motivations for making these impossible promises ahead of the EU referendum need to be taken in context. After the SNP lost the independence referendum, they pivoted that into unprecedented electoral success in 2015. Under 50% of the popular support is a losing vote in a referendum but it was enough to give a large majority victory with the UK's first-past-the-post voting system. So building on a 45% yes vote, being a losing referendum in September 2014, the SNP was able to take 49% of the Scottish electoral vote in 2015, but gain 95% of the Scottish MP. Looking at the core Brexit architects of Gove and Johnson, I'd suggest this is what they wanted to emulate. They had a shocked and muted reaction um, after the result, whenever against the polls they'd won. There was a lack of a plan. It seemed they had not intended or wanted to win. To them, and from this point of view, it didn't matter to them if they made impossible promises during the Brexit campaign, because if, as Paul suggested, the UK voted to remain, they would be in a powerful narrative position. Following the SNP Pathfinder model, they could build on that frustrated minority who had just missed out on their referendum win and pivot it into first-past-the-post electoral success, while not having to deliver on the impossible promises they had. This could be seen as one distinct difference between the Brexit and independence referendums. The Scottish nationalists who didn't want to lose, the Conservative Brexiteers who didn't want to win, both were disappointed, and neither are fulfilling their impossible promises. This is a serious issue. How can we spot impossible promises? How can we counter them? What can we do about them? Looking at these three examples, how can we protect ourselves? 
Apart from common sense, the first red flag is remit. If the electorate do what the populist asks, that's vote for them in a presidential election, a referendum, or another election, will that give them the power to deliver? Often, they are making promises based on what third parties will do. Vote for me and Mexico will pay for the wall, whatever they say now. Vote for independence. The UK will enter a formal currency union, whatever they say now. Vote to take back control and leave the EU. They'll give us all the same benefits, whatever they say now. And it's possible to improve border security, but the 50-foot the cartoon wall paid for by Mexico that Donald Trump promised was never going to happen. It was promising the impossible. And independent Scotland could not have used the pound and had full control of economic levers. Promising both was promising the impossible. And there was nothing to suggest that the UK could leave the EU and keep all the benefits of being a member. Or, by any calculation, that we could spend £350 million a week more in the NHS. That was promising the impossible. We might also be able to judge our populists by the company they keep. The three examples we've looked at might seem to come from very different places. Uh, Trump's evangelical white supremacist American nationalism. The SNP's left-of-centre civic nationalism led at that time by Alex Salmond with Deputy Nicola Sturgeon, and David Davis's Eurosceptic nostalgic nationalism. Of course, as those with longer memories will recognise, before they fell out, Alex Salmond courted Donald Trump for controversial investment in Scotland. Controversial because Alex Salmond's government overrode local planning permission and gave Trump permission to develop a golf course over a protected wildlife site sand dunes that have now been destroyed and are lost. David Davis, while looking at post-Brexit trade deals, also courted Trump's government with a view to lowering British food standards to open up markets to US producers. To complete the triangle, David Davis actually remains Alex Salmon's closest friend from his years at Westminster. They remain close, indeed, uh, David Davis was the opening guest at Salmon's Edinburgh Fringe Show. It's tempting to seek the simplest explanation. They're just telling a target audience what they want to hear, and the voters are too stupid not to see through it and go along with it. It's done to cement strong support, it's just a means to an end. Get the vote over the line, and once it's too late, who cares if the promises can be delivered? But looking at them, sometimes they may believe the impossible promises themselves. Martin Luther King said, Nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance. That might apply to the followers too. In her research paper, The Strategy of Campaign Promises, Tabitha Bonilla, the research assistant professor at the Institute for Policy Research, Northwestern University, suggests that what's happening is promises are a signal that's stronger than policy. She says, Promises might act as a mechanism that alters the strength of the signal candidates transmit to voters. In varying the strength of commitment candidates attach to a position, they alter voters' expectations around policies, and can potentially increase support among constituents who are similarly interested in specific policies. Research also shows that promises work to polarise voter opinions on a candidate. Voters who do not already agree with um, the driving force behind the policy, so pro-immigration voters in the US example, will be antagonised by the promise because it's a stronger signal. So in terms of the populace then, promises play better to the dynamic of the highly engaged base, the rally, the crowd, on issues that are important to them. And we need to remember one of the, the weaknesses of democracy that they're exploiting. Dr. Bonilla's research shows most Americans don't believe that candidates will keep their promises once in office anyway. So it's a short-term strategy, but populists see the risks as low. The research indicates to them that the punishment for breaking the promise in the future will be worth it for the credibility and engagement now. 
Once votes are final, they may have no intention of delivering, as with the Brexit assurances, on getting all the same benefits of membership. And of course, it's win-win because if they lose the vote, as with the SNP in 2014, the promise is never put to the test. And the impossible promise is just one of the 12 techniques that they can use. These techniques don't work in isolation, they work together. If an impossible promise comes back to haunt them, they can spin it that they are in the process of delivering it, by lying, that progress towards the impossible is being made. Um, or they can segue into a use of another technique, scapegoating. A scapegoat is stopping them from delivering the promise. If you don't vote for me again, fear-mongering, if you don't vote for me again, I'm not going to be able to deliver the promise. Psychologically, it seems, voters may prefer a candidate who signals with a promise they agree with them strongly on an issue and then breaks the promise over a candidate who delivers on a policy position but then isn't as committed to it. However, Dr. Susan Krauss writes in Psychology Today that... Research in marketing psychology provides intriguing insights into why broken campaign promises hurt so bad. The effect is known as negative expectancy disconfirmation. This suggests that consumers or voters who feel a promise has been broken are angrier than they are happy when a promise is kept. Trump's build the wall helped get him elected, but it could harm his chances of re-election as previous supporters turn against him. North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows, previously a Trump supporter, said... He campaigned on the wall. It was the centre of his campaign. The American people's patience is running out. Right-wing columnist Anne Coulter, who wrote In Trump We Trust, has predicted that failing to deliver his impossible promise means he will not be re-elected. She wrote, Without a wall, he will only be remembered as a small cartoon figure who briefly inflamed and amused the rabble. The Scottish Nationalist Party's impossible promises in the white paper received criticism at the time, but nothing like the scrutiny that would have happened with a win when they had to try and deliver them. Unlike the Trump or Brexit campaigns, they have not had to deliver on any of their impossible promises. Their voters have not won, but neither have they been disappointed. So, if the base don't care if it's impossible, the populists don't care if they can deliver it, and voters might not even care if they don't after it's too late, what can we do? There is an opportunity. If a voter is undecided, or leaning towards the populace generally, but is ambivalent to the specific issue, then demonstrating how or why the promise is impossible will weaken the appeal. And a possible strategy for dealing with populists generally is counterintuitive. Traditional theory would say to speak to voters, speak to them about what they care about the most. Counterintuitively, perhaps we can reduce the credibility of populists with voters by pointing out the impossible promises on the issues that are not as important to the person you're speaking with. This is because they can look at it with a bit more detachment than the emotional connection that allows them to believe the impossible. For example, if your MAGA-supporting grandpops is hell-bent on reducing the perceived number of Mexicans, he's not going to listen when you tell him the wall is impossible. He's going to double down on the belief and chant it twice as loud. But if he doesn't really care about the coal industry, then you could possibly damage Trump's credibility with him by exposing the impossible promises made on bringing back the coal jobs. Coal productivity has increased through technology. One machine operator can now do the work that 10 miners did a couple of decades ago. Even if the industry is saved, those coal jobs aren't coming back. Now, if that and other examples of impossible promises on things he doesn't have an emotional blind spot for, you can demonstrate those, it may be more likely that he will then bring himself round to questioning the credibility. If someone believes, as a matter of faith, that an independent Scotland could have kept the pound in 2014, but they don't have an emotional fuss either way about nuclear disarmament, then you can point out one of the other many impossible promises made in the White Paper. The White Paper promised to remove nuclear weapons from the Clyde River in Scotland. 
but it also promised that Scotland would have non-nuclear NATO membership on a Denmark model. The problem is, under that model, under that proposal, any nuclear-armed NATO ship, including the UK submarines, would have full access to Scottish ports and waters, on a don't-ask-don't-tell basis. They could promise to remove nuclear weapons from the Clyde. They could promise to apply to be a member of NATO. They were mutually exclusive. Promising both was promising the impossible. This isn't an easy one to counter. You need to be warned if the voter you're speaking to is invested in wanting the promise to be true, if they've felt a connection to the populist due to the promise, then the backfire effect might come into play. Correcting information will just make partisan individuals cling more strongly to their views. For a great breakdown of the backfire effect, uh, go and find the oatmeal. You're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. Um, we'll put a link on the on the page in the show notes. So what can we do? If you do come across a claim, a promise you know is impossible, and let's face it, it's probably going to be on social media, it's probably going to be repeated by multiple people. Our advice would be, don't argue with multiple threads. Put together a single counter-argument in one place, or search for someone who has already pulled it together, and keep a library of those links. Whether that's a post you can share, a paragraph you can cut and paste, a Twitter thread, a video you can link to, or a simple statement of fact um, that shows it's untrue, keep that. Then when you come across the claim, you can quickly share that without needing to be endlessly repeating yourself and retyping and refinding. There's going to be a reaction to that. Arguments, insults, blocks, as people find their faith in the impossible is challenged. That's okay. Remember that for every vocal supporter of the populist reacting badly, there might be ten others reading that exchange who will then see the impossible promise for what it is. It's crucial that the impossible promises are challenged. There are no quick, easy answers, but in the name of rational progress, we must keep challenging the impossible where we find it. Populism thrives on division, on emotion, on faith. The narrative is us and them. Often from outside the support at the rallies, online, it can seem like an almost cult-like faith-based devotion. They're very good at using pathos. People make an emotional decision. That bridges the, the, the leap of faith. It can make their supporters literally believe the impossible. Despite the belief that we are rational creatures, logical reason can be weak against an invested belief. To the voters with strong beliefs, the promise being made is more important than the promise being kept or being possible. They may not even expect the promise will be kept. In that situation, proving the possible to be impossible is irrelevant to changing their opinion. Does that sound familiar? As Nietzsche says, Sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. The impossible promises create a dichotomy. Those who believe the impossible and those who don't. That can make this technique so dangerous. If the populist can get you to believe one impossible thing, they can get you to believe six impossible things before breakfast. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Just like I promised, right? So thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe wherever you find the podcast. You can get in touch on Twitter at Bingo Demagogue, B-I-N-G-O-D-E-M-A-G-O-G-U-E. And you can find references, show notes, articles, links, and more at populistsplaybook.com. Join us soon for the next chapter of the Populists Playbook.